Thank you, Aaron. One of my favorite songs, reminding us that the goodness of God precedes our badness. Can you say amen? All right. Let's pray. Lord, bless this time in the Word. Anoint us and enliven us and give us a deeper affection for you. Forgive us, Lord, when our affection has been given to other places, other things, maybe even people in the wrong ways. May our lives be yours, Lord, so we can be free. In Jesus' name, amen. I've entitled my message today, That Woman Resurrecting the Three Angels. This morning, I'm going to be talking very specifically to the female half of this congregation and those that are watching online. Obviously, the message is for all, but I'm going to invite our ladies, the female half of this congregation, to make some decisions, to recognize what culture is doing, how it's trending, and to reshape our lives in the form of Jesus, the fountain of affection. So I want to start this morning by thinking about the difference between men and women. And by the way, if, if you trend towards uh, the modern definition of feminist, uh, this sermon will have woven into it a variety of things that war against the modern, secular, human, humanistic understanding of the feminist movement. I don't make any apologies for that. As a matter of fact, I believe that the devil is looking to, uh, to twist and, and deface, to mar and graffiti every element of God's original design he can. So should we be surprised if the dynamic of Christian womanhood comes under that focus? Now, I also understand that men have brought a tremendous amount of suffering on women and children through the years. Now, the men who follow Jesus don't do that. I didn't say the men who call themselves Christian. I said the men who follow Jesus don't do that. They create safety and security. They create value. They bring a precious, wonderful, unifying influence to the home. So where the modern feminist movement has fallen down is that it has no recourse except to teach a strong defense of person in the absence of the partnership that God plans for beautiful, harmonious, respectful love relationships. If you've been in a home where a husband as a function of anger, abuse, alcoholism, or any other of the isms has marred your life as a man, I offer you a corporate apology. But this morning, I really truly believe that unless the women rise up and fulfill their role, needing a true strength and inner person, there's really no hope for the future of the church. Now, Revelation chapter 18 describes a fourth angel. The spirit of prophecy talks about a great light. We know that she writes about an army of youth rightly trained, and I'm absolutely convinced that much of this rides on the shoulders of mothers in Israel, godly sisters in Israel, daughters of heaven. If they don't fulfill their role as Christ calls them to it, but they take the path of the world, they'll mar everything they touch. And the Bible is very clear. It's better to dwell in the corner of a house or on a rooftop than with an angry woman. 
Now, I'm not suggesting that some women don't have a right to be angry. As a matter of fact, it's important that the men of a church, its elders and its deacons, the friends of other men who are going astray, running off the road of life, dragging people in the home through the mud, it's absolutely imperative that men be men. And they stand up to men that are out of bounds with the energy and strength they have in the frame of their maleness. At the same time this morning, I'm absolutely convicted that the world is seeking to extinguish the fragrance of the fountain of affection, the love that God wants to flow so beautifully as a magnet. So let's think about this just for a moment. If love is who God is, and love is an irresistible power, how effective would it be of Satan to try to make women like men or men like women and mar the balance? So there is this beautiful balance that Christ created in the, in the garden where two genders re reflect a beautiful wholeness. This morning, it just happens to be I'm talking to one side of the coin primarily. When I was a teenager coming to Christ, there was a family in the church in Peoria that just really captured my affection. I'm not going to use their name. They had a couple sons. One of them was a year older than me. I used to ride motorcycles with them and uh, enjoyed it very much. And I can tell you that sitting in their home with that woman, my mother's age, a mother in Israel, I'll tell you, this lady was in my mind the most beautiful, probably most beautiful Christian I knew. And my, if I was a flower, my heart just opened up under the sweetness, the kindness. She was a woman of substance. Her, she was a woman of backbone. Her husband was not walking with God, but you know what? She was going to. And she didn't do it with the, I've got rights and you won't run over me. She did it with the beauty of 1 Peter chapter 3, where we're admonished as ladies to be like Sarah and do what's right without any fear and to win your husband without words. Well, how are you going to do that? It's going to be the beauty of your inner person. It's going to be the nobility of your choices. It's going to be the wholeness of your soul that comes from living with Christ. It's going to be the ability to render respect even to your non-Adventist, non-Christian husband in such a way that's proper until it crosses the lines of respect and obedience to God. And I want to tell you something. Any man Godless or Godful knows that the safest woman to have in your life is one who puts God above you. This is the way it works. So this morning I will look at a woman. Her name is Mary. Mary of Bethany or Mary of Magdala. And you say, Pastor, are they the same? Take your Bibles and open up to the book of Mark, chapter 16. The story of Mary anointing Jesus is told in all of the Gospels. None of them call her bad, except one. In Mark chapter 16, verse 9, we find out that there is a Mary who had a pretty sordid past. Mark chapter 16, looking at verse 9. Now, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist preacher. I make no bones about it. I'm not preaching theological doctrine that separates us from Christianity today. I do believe, like this says on the back, that God's remnant church 
will have the testimony and the faith of Jesus, which is defined as the spirit of prophecy. This morning, I will lean a little bit disproportionately on a book that the Library of Congress once recognized as the best commentary on the life of Christ called The Desire of Ages. I'm going to show you how these two personages are not two, but one. Mark chapter 16, verse 9. This is what it says about Mary. Mary is mentioned in the four Gospels primarily at the end of the story, but just a bit more. It says now, verse 9 of chapter 16 in Mark, now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he appeared to Mary Magdalene from whom he cast out how many demons? Seven. We all seem to know that. It's important for us to recognize that this was a woman with a challenged past. If we look at Luke chapter 7, verses 38 to 50, which we won't do, we find the story of the feast at Simon's house and the rebuke of Simon. It's only told in the story of Luke. When we come to John chapter 11, we start getting a few more clues about this Mary. Go to John chapter 11, if you would. It's the story of the resurrection of Lazarus. John chapter 11, we start to get some identity. We find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke a nameless bad woman. Actually, she's not labeled as bad in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But we find this woman who's anointing feet. It's the feet of Jesus. Luke, or John 11, verse 1 and 2. Now a certain woman was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, in the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary, or that Mary, who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now, why do I point this out to you? I do it for a couple reasons. Number one, I've based my sermon titled, That Woman, off this verse. It's that woman. In case you're confused about whose home we're at in, Luke chap in John chapter 11. The other thing I want you to see is that sometimes the Bible writers will drop details chronologically out of place because the story of that anointing is in John chapter 12. Flip over to the next chapter. So before it happens, because this narrative, this gospel is being written at the end of the first century, we have the story of Mary who is of Bethany but must have had a chapter in her life where she was from Magdala as well. John chapter 12, there is Simon's house. Now, I'm about to tie two things together because without the benefit of the desire of ages, you'll be limited in your ability to do this. Some commentators believe that the two women at least have been thought to be the same in the past. As a matter of fact, in the 6th century AD, one of the popes made Mary of Bethany and Mary of Magdala the same person. He did an Easter series of sermons in 591. Now, you can say, well, pastor, that's not inspired. And I'll say, you're right. But when we come down to the desire of ages, this is what she says on the last page dealing with the feast at Simon's house, page 568.1. Seven times, okay, we're in John 12 now. Seven times she had heard his rebuke of the demons that controlled her heart and mind.
So for what it's worth, since I'm going to build a biographical message off this woman, you need to understand that in the mind of Ellen White, author of The Desire of Ages, Mary of Magdalene and Mary of Bethany were the same woman. So we started with Mark chapter 16, verse 9, out of which seven demons have been cast, and we're ending on the last page in the feast at Simon's house in the Desire of Ages, and Ellen White is nailing this on the head. This is the same Mary. Now, she was a woman of substance. We know that she and Joanna and Susanna, from the book of Luke chapter 8, followed Jesus and provided for them out of their substance. This would also give some sense of her influence when it comes to the Jews following her around, like at Lazarus' resurrection. Martha came out to meet Jesus when she heard he was there. Mary didn't come right away, and all the influential Jews were hanging out with Mary as she was weeping at the tomb. But when Mary got up to come see Jesus, all of them came with her. They seemed to be very tuned in on money, and it appears that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus came from a more upscale home in Bethany. But it appears there was a chapter in Mary's life that wasn't so beautiful. One of the important things I want to note as we look into this lady's life is that she was a healed woman. You need to know when you read the story that according to Daughters of God, also written by Ellen White, Simon was her uncle, and Simon was the one that led her into sin. That means that she was the subject of abuse of some of the worst type at a young age, which probably set her up to feel like a piece of trash and operate in a way in which she sold herself for the sacred. God never intended that any child find themselves marred and twisted by the hand of an older person that takes advantage of them. But clearly, by the time we come to the end of the story of Jesus, she is a healed woman. Now, unfortunately, the percentage of those who have found this experience to be theirs is rather high. Which means that if you're listening to me today, doesn't matter what gender you are, even though this is primarily focused at a call to the women of this congregation, it doesn't matter what gender you are, but especially if you were victimized, you need to understand there is complete and perfect healing in a love relationship with Jesus that will give you the power to define good boundaries and to forgive perpetrators. Can you say amen? This is important to the story. If the healing touch of Christ never came to her life, she would never have the prominence that she has. And by the way, nobody has mentioned more than Mary that's not related to Jesus, even with the exception of a few of the apostles. But many of the apostles don't even make it into the, the, the list of mentioning of names like Mary does. She is a healed woman. She doesn't find her healing outside of the provision of Jesus. Seven times he will pray for her. The spirit of prophecy makes it clear that she could hear his agonizing prayers. Jesus did not give up on her, so lady, don't give up on yourself. If it takes time after time where you're battling the anger and the resentment, keep coming back to Jesus. John chapter 12, beginning with verse 1, the story. It says, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who Jesus raised from the dead. I need you to understand the timing of the story. This is six days before the cross. 
Why does it matter? Because at this moment, Jesus is going to raise up this, this godly woman with an ungodly past. And he's going to make some very powerful statements. He's going to teach everybody. Nobody's going to leave that room without learning a lesson. Thank you, lady. Thank you, Mary. This woman here is a divine ambassador of what true femininity and powerful Christianity look like. And so six days before the crisis of Christ's life, here is this lady coming into prominence. Now, I don't think most of us would argue with the fact that we're not too far away from seeing Jesus appear in the clouds, which is why I'm preaching this sermon, because I'm absolutely convinced if there aren't godly mothers in Israel and sisters in Israel and aunties in Israel and grandmas in Israel, if we don't have a true renaissance of devotion, which I believe is an especially feminine strength, we're not going to see the renewal of the culture of our homes and the hearts of our Christian society. It won't be our precious little jewels we're taking with us to heaven. We need healed women in a vibrant relationship with Jesus who understand that at the very end of time, there is a very special work for them to do. The closing chapters of this story are going to be written. Some of them are going to involve kids that are preaching the gospel because the adults have been thrown in jail or are too afraid. Who's going to teach them? Who's going to nerve them? Who's going to show them how to have a living faith in Christ? It's going to be that woman. It's going to be those Marys. It's going to be those godly women who understand what it means to walk with Jesus. Yes, we're close to the end, which is why this morning God's laid it on my heart to call for a new type of devotion from the women in the congregation. The third thing you need to understand is that this all turned out different than she thought. Verse 2, so they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, and Lazarus was sitting. But Mary just wanted to slip under the radar, verse 4. Verse 3, Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard. She anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and something happened she didn't think about. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And all of a sudden, she went from being out of the focus to being in the focus. Judas Iscariot, named in the Gospel of John, nowhere else, one of his disciples, indeed, who was intending to betray him, said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box, and he used to pilfer what was put into it. I didn't say this in the first sermon this morning, but folks, let's get used to the fact that the church is a gathering place for the saved and the lost, and you don't know how it's going to end up. So if there's some Judases in the midst, or there's some Simons in the midst, or there's some hard-headed, hard-hearted apostles in the midst, don't be discouraged. The real heroine of this story is a woman, and she's going to rise above it all. Thank you, Jesus. But what I want you to see is that she was not out tooting her own horn. She had no desire to be noticed. Desire of Ages says she sought to avoid observation, and her movements might have passed unnoticed, but the ointment filled the room with fragrance and published her act to everybody. Did you catch it? She sought to be unpublished, but her act made it published. And before it's all said and done, Jesus said, everywhere this story is told, I'll publish it again. 
This is an amazing story. Everywhere this gospel story is told, she's going to be talked about. But listen to me. Whatever model you have to live by, live by the Mary model. I'm not out to make a name. I'm not out to make a statement. I'm not out to do anything except what Jesus tells me to do. And if Jesus wants to publish it and Jesus wants to proclaim it, he can do it. The fourth thing I want you to see about this lady is that she was a leader. It's hard for me to understand how dense these 12 apostles could be. But what she leads in is what Christ wants the most, which is affection. Now, I know there's books written, The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown, where they try to twist the relationship between Mary of Magdalene and Jesus. Of course they've got to do that because it fits the narrative of, of free living, low standards, hypersexuality, etc., etc. Nothing can be pure and beautiful. But I'm here to tell you today, the love and affection she had for him was exactly what God needed as he stared down the barrel of, of, of delivering the human race. Joseph of Arimathea the Desire of Ages 560, and Nicodemus offered not their gift of love to Jesus in his life. With bitter tears, they brought their costly spices for his cold, unconscious form. The women who bore the spices to the tomb found their errand in vain, for he had risen. But Mary, that woman, pouring out her love upon the Savior while he was conscious of her devotion, was anointing him for the burial. Now listen to this next line. I want it burned into your consciousness. As he went down into the darkness of his great trial. He carried with him the memory of that deed as an earnest of the love that would be his from the redeemed ones forever. Did you catch it? She makes a down payment on behalf of the human race for what Christ really deserves, and she's giving, and nobody else wants to. Judas looks at it and thinks, man, I could do something with that. And the apostles start listening to him because... He's got to come up with a good storyline. Oh, that'd be good for the poor. And they start saying, yeah, he's right. What a waste. And Jesus says, you need to stop, leave her alone, and be quiet. And what Jesus has now flowing from a heart unfettered by self-interest is Jesus has a down payment of what he's going to get from all of us when we're at the tree of life and casting our crowns at his feet. He got it then. It was all he had until he went to the cross with the exception of a thief saying, Lord, it's two bad people that honor Jesus the most as he walks into the darkness. I'd like to be in that group with him. She saw what nobody else saw, that Jesus was worthy of this kind of affection. Her act, her act was inspired. This woman was spirit-led, point number five. It was spirit-planned. As a matter of fact, it was really a pretty bad plan, except that it was an amazing, exceptional plan. From a human point of view, it was about the worst thing that could have ever happened. A logical man would have said, what do you mean you didn't think you were going to be noticed? You're going to pour this fragrant perfume into a small room, and you think you're going to get in and get out without becoming the center of attention? But the Spirit planned it, and the Spirit led her, and the Spirit prompted her. And I'll tell you what, if ever we needed some Spirit-led women, we sure do need them now. She could not explain, Desire of Ages 560, why she had chosen that occasion for anointing Jesus. 
Why in such a public way? Why were so many people present? The Holy Spirit had planned for her, and she had obeyed his prompting. And I love these next few words. Inspiration stoops to give no reason. An unseen presence, it speaks to mind and soul and moves the heart to action. It is its own justification. Listen, you might be smart at this and good at that, but what you really need to be is able to be moved by the Spirit of God, and then God will do something with your life. Turn off the TV. Be less on the social media. Don't let other people have the precious substance of life, which is called time. And if you're going to be in those places, especially in the social media world, use it for good. But I'm affirming to you today beyond a shadow of a doubt that we need spirit-led women. They might not be even able to explain their actions, but their life is a life of conscious innocence. They know they're doing what they were prompted to do. It's not bad, even though it's misunderstood at times, and they go forward. Number six, they need to be a catalyst for others' growth. That's what she was. She didn't plan to be, but she was. Judas got a lesson. He was stingy. He was penurious. He wanted it himself. She's the opposite of him. Then there's Simon, the host. He thinks he's good. Truth of the matter is, he knows how bad she is because she start, he started her down that road. And then there's the disciples all sitting around nodding their heads with Judas saying, yep, should have been given to the poor. What a waste. How many other disciples were there that day caught up in the crossfire of emotions and ideas? We don't know. But the work that, of Mary, Desire of Ages 565, was just the lesson the disciples needed to show them that the expression of their love to him would be pleasing to Christ. Plainly, yet with delicate politeness, the Savior assured his disciples that his heart is grieved when, the when his children neglect to show their gratitude to him by words and deeds of love. Can you imagine? Jesus was so lonely on this planet. Why did he get so little? And why, when he got it, did someone try to make it look so bad? And the last item here before I go into a few theological observations is that this woman is immortalized of an example of how to live and how to love. How to live and how to love. No wonder the people would like to twist this relationship. Kingdoms would rise and fall, Desire of Ages 563. Monarchs and conquerors would be forgotten. But this woman's deeds would be immortalized upon the pages of sacred history. That means throughout all time and eternity. Until time should be no more, that broken alabaster box would tell the story of an abundant love for a, for a fallen race. These are seven distinct things. Now, I want to go quickly over a few more. This lady was a fountain of affection. In writing A Desire of Ages, the author says, he accepted the wealth of pure affection, which his disciples did not and would not understand. So I want to ask you ladies, do you understand the wealth of pure affection? Or is the world squeezing you into a mold where you have to present yourself to look like all the rest of the women? So that what you're really promoting is form or face or something else. The truth of the matter is, if there was ever a time when we needed the wealth of affection, if love is going to win the war, we need it flowing from the sources where it starts and originates best. 
the wealth of affection the disciples did not, would not understand. The desire that Mary had to do service for her Lord was of more value to Christ than all the precious ointment in the world because it expressed her appreciation of the world's Redeemer. It was the love of Christ that motivated her. The matchless excellence of the character of Christ filled her soul. That ointment was just a symbol of the heart of the giver. It was an outward demonstration of a love fed by heavenly streams until it overflowed. You know what Ellen White says about Jesus? When a child would pick a flower and bring it to Jesus, he was never too busy to take it. He was never too busy to affirm the gift. You want to develop that kind of pure affection in the heart of your child? That's what's going to get us through the time of trouble. That's what's going to get us to stand up against the mark of the beast. People are going to say, I love Jesus more than I love life. I'm planning to see him, and I'm not denying him here and now. That's what's going to make it through that time, friends. It's not going to be uh, kegs of food and water. It's not going to be a house a thousand miles from a neighbor. It's going to be the fact that God's people have fallen in love with the affection of Jesus. They know the wealth of affection, but where are they going to learn it from on earth? Why not mom? How affectionate are you? I know we're not all cut from the same personality cloth, and we don't all need to be mimicking each other, but wherever you are on an on a emotional spectrum of affection, ask God to help you move it a notch. Because I want to tell you, you never get tired. I'm going to speak as a person who receives it. You see, I don't make a lot of money, but I'm here to tell you, my kids grew up rich my wife's children in her little fourth grade class are rich, and her husband is a rich man because she is a fountain of affection, a strong woman, a smart woman, a dignified woman, but an affectionate woman. This is what God is calling us to be. Put your arm on a little child's head. Put your hand around somebody. Appropriate touch always only, of course. But if they're related to you especially, pass out the words of encouragement and give those hugs and kisses and turn your heart and your children's hearts into a garden that is fragrant and fruitful and verdant. To know Jesus requires a change of heart. No unconverted person in his natural state of depravity loves Jesus. That's the real catch. Because to love Jesus, he says, well, you, this is competing and this is competing. Could I have it? Ellen <laughs> mm. White describes fashion as the iron-fisted, what's the word? Matron, I think. Ladies, could you excel in giving proper affection in proper places. And don't be foolish, ladies. Don't be giving out your affection across gender lines to people close to your age or anything else like that. Be wise. The second thing you need to know, she was discerning. Daughters of God, page 239, many need sympathy and appreciation, but those who would wash the saints' feet, which is a directive in the Bible, didn't make it up, not in the spirit of prophecy. They must have sanctified discernment that they may be able to recognize a saint. Come on, put your thinking cap on. This lady is wise. The Spirit has guided her. She is going to be a fountain of affection. She does know the wealth of affection. 
She's not going to be afraid to give away what the human heart craves. This is what Jesus carried into the darkness of the cross. But she was discerning, and she could tell it was time to make an exit, and she was planning to get out of there until Jesus said, leave her alone. The third thing we need to know about her is this lady is courageous. She's no wallflower. Everybody else is hiding out. Jesus has been crucified. She didn't remember that he said he was going to live again. She was on her way to the sepulcher on Sunday morning to finish the anointing. But I'll tell you what, nobody else is going, or very few, I should say. She's going to go see those hundred soldiers and look them in the eye and tell her she's got something to do. And by the way, would you mind rolling the stone away so I could do it? I want you to think about this woman. Nobody else is on the way out there. Just her. She's joined by others at times. And the fourth thing I want to say before I look at those theological dynamics is that she is a generous woman. Listen. They said what she did was a waste. <laughs> they called what she did a waste. And coming from a greedy soul, it probably was. But Jesus said, this is no waste. This is exactly what I want and need. Are you generous, ladies? Do you make sure you get everything you need and then what's left over for God is enough? Or could God come first? Could the heart's desire be transformed through the living Christ to be generous? I hear all these stories. I've experienced them of godly women, whether it's in America or around the world, whether it's in the present or it's in history. They don't really have enough to feed a messenger of God, but they're going to bring them into their home. It could be uh, the, the woman of, of, for Elijah. Whatever it might be, these godly women who actually say there's going to be another place at the table, the soup's going to be a little bit thinner. We're not even there. But when we get there, will there be godly women? Christ's offering was exceedingly abundant to reach every soul. It was abundant just like Mary's. Now, as I finish up, four theological truths associated with her life. Number one, grace. This woman was bad. She was very bad. As a matter of fact, I think she's so bad that they were able to suck her into a trap and drag her into the temple. Can't prove it, won't try to. But I personally think that the woman caught in adultery is the same woman. But whether she is or isn't, she's experienced a forgiving and an empowering grace. Contrast Judas and Mary. She's at the feet of Jesus who's at the table, and Judas is at the table. Ellen White says, Judas has indulged avarice. That's another word for greed, avarice, until it overpowered every good trait of his character. But when she talks, when Ellen White writes about Mary, she says that he, she became a partaker of the divine nature, two lives going opposite directions. Which are you going to indulge, the carnal nature or are you going to carry the cross, friends? Mary carries the cross into her life and it transforms her to where divine inspiration will record that she's done a good thing. And Ellen White writing in Desire of Ages will say she has found and partaken of the divine nature. She has a grace that forgives her sins. Doesn't matter how bad you've been. Doesn't matter how dark your choices or your thoughts have been. And she has an empowering relationship with Christ, which is another kind of grace. 
And she goes on out of the darkness to the mountains of light. And at the very end, nobody else gets it, but Mary gets it. Jesus has said, I'm going to die. Nobody seems to get it, but Mary gets it. And when she's pouring that ointing out on on the feet, that was going to be her contribution for the grave. But she heard Jesus was going to be king now, so she pours it out on him in jubilation. And a happy moment goes almost bad. Jesus knows the circumstances of every soul. You may say, I'm sinful, very sinful. You may be, Desire of Ages 568, but the worse you are, the more you need Jesus. This is so important. The cross. Mary doesn't understand the cross, but she does understand death. How many times have they been told, I'm going to die? Mary's heart was filled with gratitude. She had heard Jesus speak of his approaching death, and in her deep love and sorrow, she longed to show him honor. And look what happens. How would you like to have been Mary? You are on your feet, kissing the feet of Jesus and anointing his hair with oil and tears with this perfume, and all of a sudden you hear your name going around the table, and you look up and you see someone with a a, a sneering-type glance and an upturned corner of their mouth, and all of a sudden it's like, well, I think I'm just going to back out of this room now. (laughs) And she's getting ready to leave, and Jesus speaks up, and he says, leave her alone. This is a real man. He'll go against all of his friends. He'll go against his host. He doesn't care what they think about him. He's going to be kind. He's going to be true. He'll leave everybody behind if he has to, especially if it helps him get everybody there in the end. Jesus went to the cross to stand up for you and me. He took my sins right there, your sins right there, and now by faith we look to Jesus who's standing up for us in this great controversy, and he's saying to those that would pin us to our sin, which we rightly deserve, leave them alone too. The third thing we need to see here, not only did she understand the death of Jesus when everybody else was ignoring it, she had no selfish ambition for place or position so she could hear, she could see, she had spiritual insight, but this woman understand righteousness by faith as well. You say, tell me how, pastor, tell me how. Well, number one, when you receive grace, you're experiencing righteousness by faith. You didn't earn it, you don't deserve it, you're receiving it. That's simple. But I want to go farther than the story's obvious points. In this moment, there's an encounter with Simon. Jesus tells him a parable. He says, one person owed a lot, one person owed a little. They were both forgiven. Which one loves the most? And Simon says, well, I suppose. The way Jesus looked at Simon, if you can accept the testimony of Desire of Ages, Jesus communicated that he knew the dark chapters of leading this woman into sin. And he didn't blab it to everybody. Now, in the context of this, I'm going to read you something. Jesus knows the circumstances of every soul. Can you put you in the every? You may say, I'm sinful, very sinful. You may be. The worse you are, the more you need Jesus. I read that to you already. He turns no weeping contrite one away. Now, here we go. Hang on. I want you to think about this. He does not tell to any, you and me, all that he might reveal. 
But he bids every trembling soul take courage. Freely he will pardon all who come to him for forgiveness and restoration. So did you get it? Let me explain it. Some of you are older. Some of you are younger. Some of you in your younger years think, well, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to do this. There are some listening to me here today who probably have done some things they never imagined they would do. Just start thinking the different numbers of the commandment. Number five. Number six. Number seven. We're starting to get close to the story here. The good news is is that when you confess your sins to Jesus, even though your heart is desperately wicked beyond your own understanding, Jeremiah 17, 9, Jesus forgives you for what you know to confess. And he knows where the potential pitfalls are, and he knows that there's things that you're struggling with and thinking and doing that you don't even know are wrong right now, and he forgives that too. He doesn't tell me or you all of the things he sees in our actions or our habits or our heart that are wrong. And by the way, there are some people who are living the Christian life like this. The accusing conscience is chasing them. They know they did that wrong. Lord, I'm sorry. They know they did that wrong. Lord, I'm sorry. They know they did that wrong. Lord, I'm sorry. They're staying one step ahead of an accusing conscience all the time. Listen, friends. God always give you more forgiveness than you asked for. Always. There's not a person listening to me here today who's got the perfection thing down pat unless they're receiving their perfection from Christ. There's things that you're going to look back 10 years from now and say, I didn't realize I was doing that. I didn't know that was wrong. And you know what? You will have been under forgiveness the whole way. Praise God. This is what righteousness by faith works like. You can't stay one step in front of every sin because you don't even know all the things you are and you've done. But the God of heaven has made provision that's more ample. He's got his own alabaster box and he broke the heart of Jesus to pour it over a stinky, dirty world. What Jesus did for her, he does for you and me. The souls that turn to Jesus... Jesus lifts, Desire of Ages, page 568. Why aren't you reading this book? We believe in the spirit of prophecy. It's not just Ellen White. It should be every parent. It should be every brother. It should be every sister. It should be every preacher and teacher to encourage and to edify, to console. The soul, the soul that turns to him for refuge, Jesus lifts above the accusing and the strife of tongues. No man or evil angel can impeach these souls. Now, we all know what impeachment is. It's a legal accusation to take someone out of a position or a place. I want to tell you, there's a battle going on for our souls, and there is a divine advocate by the name of Jesus who says, you can't tell me anything about these people I don't already know. I've loved them to the nth degree, though they've abandoned me and turned away from me, and yet I will hear someday from a cacophony, from a large audience, numberless, 
the love and expression of faith that came from Mary. And the last thing that she's associated with, of course, is the resurrection. Kind of a painful thing. Mary had to put up with a number of indignities on tasks for Jesus. Luke chapter 24, looking at verse 1, says that when she came and told the apostles that her word appeared as nonsense. Do you like not being believed? Do you like it when people act like you're not credible? You know what was credible? <laughs> Mary loved Jesus. And you know what? They act like her word was nonsense. But there were a couple guys by the name of Peter and John that decided to slip out the door. And they started running. And the Bible tells us some interesting deals, details. John ran faster than, than Peter. They may have acted like, oh, what does she think? What does she know? But you know what? She moved them to action again. And she brought good news. Tell Peter and the apostles to meet me in Galilee. Mary Magdalene is known by some as the apostle to the apostles. Pretty good, huh? Listen, we need some more miracles in this church. I'm telling you, we need some more miracles in this church. We need these godly women full of grace and courage and discernment we need them to actually stand up and be on their knees to be seeking from God that which only God can give us. If there's going to be a generation rightly trained, if they're going to be fr uh, vibrant, fruitful families, listen, friends, you can do marriage any way you want today. You don't even have to do marriage. But if you want to do marriage according to the design of the one who created it, then men do it the way he designed it, and ladies, follow in the footsteps of the biblical prescription as well. Let your heart be a fountain of affection. Be strong, be dignified, be courageous, be discerning. But most of all, be like that woman and let God do something with your life for time and eternity. I'm here today <laughs> beyond a shadow of a doubt. My grandmother... Hard life, though she had, Jesus was first. And little Ronnie, her oldest grandson, was on her lips, I'm sure, at least once a day. And her daughter, my mother, was prayed for too. And in spite of my mother's reluctance to make a full surrender when I was a little teenager, she still stuffed me into that church school where I didn't want to go. And as a result, Two women who were willing to stand up for what they knew was right put the path of this man on a journey to faithful fulfillment of the gospel messages. How many more to follow in line? You may think you're too old. It may be that you don't have children. I don't know what the excuse may be. Friends, ladies especially, exercise the full power of a divine femininity without being marred by the new marks of secular feminism, and let's see what God will do for this church. You stand up to your husband when you need to, and you respect him the way Ephesians 5 all the time at the same time, like Abigail with David. And in the end, you'll turn the feet of those who should be going in the path of right onto the path of light, and who knows what time and eternity will tell. You don't even know yourself. But someday in the University of the New Jerusalem, we'll go into the archives from planet Earth and we'll pull the books off the shelf and your name will be written down there. And all the results of what you prayed and what you said and who you were and how you lived and what you did. Amen? 
All right, we want to take the jewels with us? Then let's raise them to be unique for Christ. They can't play with their phones all they want. As a matter of fact, a lot of them are too young to even have them. They're just opening the door up for appetites and addictions that they'll spend the rest of their life breaking. Why do that? Oh, it's going to take some courage. Oh, you're going to have to put your face into the wind. It's going to take a lot of love. But I'll tell you what, kids are pretty smart. They know who loves them and who doesn't. And they'll come back to the ones who do. Amen and amen.